0: contemplating the rare opportunity of human life, the impermanence of this life, the effectiveness of every intentional action, and the dis satisfactory nature of habitual grasping. Contemplating these, I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, vowing to realize awakening for the benefit of all beings here and now. Sometimes I like to say that phrase at the beginning of Zazen to uh, remember what I'm doing and why these four contemplations were taught by our great beneficent original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, over and over, many times in the early teachings, and the later teachings, and the in between teachings. And uh, they were taught by our Zen founder, Dogen, Zenji in Japan, over and over. Usually when we think of Dogen's teachings, we don't think of these four, but they're there. I'm bringing up a few examples as we talk about them. But many places, he mentions these, you could say classic, simple teachings of the Buddha. And uh, putting them together as this particular set of four may have first started as, as um, a set of four contemplations in uh, Tibetan tradition. Even though they're, they're trademarks of all, all Buddhist traditions, even pre-Mahayana Dharma. In um, it, in addition to my root tradition of Zen, I also like to practice Tibetan Buddhist traditions. And uh, in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, there's four kind of major branches or schools of Tibetan Buddhism. They all share. Um, what's what they call preliminary practices. Tibetan, the word is nundro. With all their varied different practices and somewhat different views of the nature of reality, there's some disagreement amongst these different Tibetan Buddhist schools and amongst Zen schools too. Um, But all share these uh, these contemplations. And in, I don't know when this started in Tibetan Buddhism, at least a few hundred years ago, this particular um, thing called preliminary practices. Usually before hearing about or practicing uh, the more subtle teachings of emptiness and, Luminous Awareness and Buddha Nature, these types of teachings that are so prominent in Zen. All the Tibetan schools traditionally um, spend some years usually uh, doing these preliminary practices to kind of warm up to these really radical teachings that, are, um, that we know and love. <laughs> like the Heart Sutra, but particularly practicing with them. There are these preliminary practices and uh, and the so-called outer preliminary practices that is the very beginning is these four contemplations, just to contemplate them over and over and over again every day for a long time in any practice session to kind of... Uh, bring them up again and again. So it starts to reshape our mind, reshape our perspective. They're very conventional, ordinary teachings, they're not none of them are about the nature of ultimate truth. They're all about the nature of conventional truth. But they're very grounding, I find this very helpful. These are the outer preliminary practices that are just contemplations. And then the inner preliminary practices in uh all the Tibetan schools are taking refuge in Buddha and, and uh, arousing bodhicitta, the aspiration for altruistic aspiration for awakening for all beings and um, repent karmic repentance like the chant we just chanted, confession and repentance and, um, and devotion to the, the lineage teachers. And the inner uh, preliminaries, like refuge comes along with what's maybe more well-known as like 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 mantra recitations to to purify karmic uh, uh, blockages and so on. Those are the more active practices. But the outer preliminaries, the preliminaries to the preliminaries is these four thoughts. So I think they're just so beneficial, I've I've found in my practice. Arriving at the third uh, contemplation, considering Contemplating the efficacy of karmic action. This one is a little harder, I think, to understand than the first two. First two are, this human life is precious and rare and it's impermanent. We don't don't maybe think about them so often, but they're pretty straightforward. They're hard to disagree with. This issue of the Buddha's teaching of karma and how karma works. It might sound simple at first, but I think if we start to get into it, it's a little tricky. So um, we can explore that right now. Karma literally is means uh, intentional action. So that's pretty straightforward. Anything we do intentionally, maybe it's not that straightforward. I'm to, start to look more closely, but anything we do intentionally with body, speech, and mind is called karma in Sanskrit. And... Uh, Intentional actions, activities of body and speech are based, of course, on intentions of mind. And uh, all three body, speech, and mind uh, intentional actions have effects. So far, maybe it doesn't sound that complicated, but but the Buddha's like teaching of karma is not only do do all our actions have effects, but here's where it gets tricky. They have effects for the person that did them. When I when I talk with people about this, often people. Um, you're like, well, of course, our actions have effects on the world and effects on other people, and so on. Um, and sometimes they might affect ourselves, but do, do all our, our intentional actions have an effect on the one who did them? Um, we might wonder about that, but especially we might wonder about it because uh, one of the hallmark teachings of the Buddha is this teaching of no separate self. the Buddha taught that there's no independent, permanent, singular, separate self. It's just a bunch of conditioned stuff of body and mind. We call it five aggregates, body and mind. But there's no kind of owner, controller, manager of all this conditioned stuff. It's kind of the the teaching of Anatman. No permanent, singular, independent, separate self. So if that's the case, then what does the Buddha mean when he says um, these actions, the effects of the actions come back to the doer of the actions? Doesn't that sound like a a continuous, permanent individual self. This is why it's tricky if we st- if we start to look more deeply into how karma works. One way of talking about this that I recall bringing up in previous years at Houston Zen Center is a. Uh, Looking at the person, conventionally speaking, a person is a, is a causal series of body and mind experiences. Anybody remember that from previous years? These are, this is conventional teaching of what we mean by a person without there being as a continuous, permanent entity called self that a person conventionally speaking is uh, a causal series of body and mind experiences there's body and mind experiences happening right now for each of us uh, it might be not that hard to understand how there can be these body and mind experiences without there being some self that owns them or is creating them or has them, but what about um, over time? So that's why I I like this image of a causal series of body and mind experiences. A causal series means there's a body and mind experience happening now, and uh, based on this present body and mind experience, as a cause, there's an effect a moment later of another body and mind experience. And our body and mind experiences are affecting each other right now, speaking and listening and so on, seeing and being seen and so on. We affect each other, but, but there's this particular causal series that each of us has of our unique uh, stream of body and mind experiences like a continuum or even just say continuum might sound a little bit like it's a permanent entity. But if we just say it's a causal series, this arises. Um, and then when this ceases, the ceasing of this becomes a condition for the arising of this. And when this ceases, it becomes a condition for the arising of this. When you plant a seed in the ground, it becomes a condition for a sprout to arise, but it's not that there's one continuous entity. Like it's not that the seed is actually turning into a sprout as, a, as some sort of permanent uh, same self of a plant. It's more just, a, it's a causal series of uh, events, starting with a seed based on the seed dependent on the seed, there's a sprout, dependent on the sprout, there's a tree and so on. I feel a little hard to follow, but we can try try on this idea of, that what we are as people are just causal series of body and mind experiences. We're each a unique causal series. There's no permanent entity of, singular, permanent, independent, separate self that, uh, that, that was here when we were born and is there when we die and is reborn from lifetime to lifetime, like some other Indian uh, philosophies propose. There's no entity like that. And yet, There can be this unique causal series of body and mind experiences that each of us, conventionally speaking, is. I'm Kokyo. I'm a causal series of body and mind experiences. Nice to meet you. Other other causal series of body and mind experiences. Our, Our causal series are also interacting with each other as we meet and converse. But you wake up tomorrow, and you, you, you have a unique causal um, series with all the memories of your life that are different from the memories of my life, right? So we can say there's some uniqueness. Now you have, you, you wake up tomorrow with the memory of today. So in a way, this causal series is part of your causal series now, and vice versa. Um, and yet, we don't know each other's memories and so on, right? Uh, can you follow this? There can be these causal series with no entity running through them, but their unique causal series of body and mind experiences. I think that's one way of talking about a conventional understanding of what a person is, without there being um, a singular, permanent, independent, separate self. Without that extreme view, the Buddha would call extreme view of singular, permanent, independent, separate self, but also without the other extreme view of tomorrow's person, tomorrow's kokyo has nothing to do with today's kokyo, because there's no self, there's no relationship between tomorrow's and today's, that's another extreme view, and it doesn't make any sense, right, of course there's a relationship between tomorrow's kokyo and today's kokyo, and it's causal series, model you could say kind of explains how that could be a lot could be said about the workings of cause and effect effect can work like this without there being any entity that runs through a lot of teachings about that but um that's the basic gist and with this understanding of what a person is conventionally i think we can understand karma through this, this understanding, because Car- the Buddha says karma comes back to karmic effects come back to the, um, the one who caused them the one. The intentions that we call karma have effects, but those effects come back to this person, to the ca- same causal series, the unique causal series. So it's not like I do something, but the effect arises in some other person. Yes, we affect each other, but it seems that the Buddha's main teaching of karma is this law that the effect comes back to the same causal series, but without there being some independent self. One uh, analogy that I thought of that may be kind of Shows this is um, what we call a river. A river, an ordinary river of water, is if we stop to um, check it out, nothing but a causal series of water. If you step back to an airplane view of the river, it looks like a thing, it looks like an entity down there. But if you go close to it, it's not some. Singular, permanent, independent, separate entity like a cell, right? It's a causal series of water uh, pieces of water. We could even say like molecules of water, many, many of them moving together in this dependently arising way that we call a river just like we call this causal series a person and this river, even though there's no singular thing there uh, upstream in in the river, part of this causal series we call the river is, um, is eroding the backs of the river. And it's, uh, it's taking part of the soil from the back and, um, mixing that soil into the causal series we call the river. And then many, many miles downstream, at a certain turn in the river where the conditions are just right for this to happen, that that soil from upstream starts getting deposited miles downstream in the same river. Remember, this river is just a causal series. So this effect that happened upstream, like the causal series created this effect called the erosion upstream. And then downstream, the effect, maybe um, miles later and also weeks later, through through time and space, later there's this um, effect of the bank building up from, that came from the erosion upstream. But it's not exactly that there's this entity called the river that did this thing upstream and that the effect comes to this, to this entity called the river downstream. Like some kind of self of a river, right? It's just conditions, but it's unique causal series called the Mississippi River. You see how the erosion upstream is a little bit like a karmic action. Of course, the river is not doing this intentionally. And then the effect, you could say the the karma that comes from this um, intention uh, is being carried by the river for a long time. How does karma get carried in our consciousness? Sometimes the Buddha talks like this way, maybe a little bit like this river. It's just an analogy. but. So the river of constantly changing consciousness is kind of mixed with the effects of karma, uh, like the soil that's being carried and then later deposited in some other time and place in the same causal series. Something like this is maybe a rough idea of uh, how we could understand the Buddha. Could talk about karma in this way without there being a separate independent self because the buddha would say things like um all beings humans but all living beings all sentient beings uh, are owners of their karma remember karma just means intentional actions they're owners of their actions their um They are the result of actions, of their actions. They are heirs of their actions. They are related to their actions. Their future will depend on their actions. The Buddha famously said something like this. And he also said, there's no permanent, singular, independent, separate self within this causal series of body and mind experiences. So these living beings that that um, that receive the results of their own actions are, uh, are like this, like these causal series. That's kind of the law of karma. And um, after reflecting on the uh, rare opportunity of this human life, now we have a kind of new way of thinking about what human life is. is a causal series of body and mind experiences. And it's a rare and precious one when it comes in the human form. And it's impermanent. Of course, a causal series isn't permanent. It's changing every moment. There's nothing, uh, no piece of it is permanent or lasting uh after contemplating those then we start looking at the workings of this rare gift that's quickly passing it's a rare gift it's quickly passing so we don't want to waste it or mess it up and um you could say this third contemplation is kind of like reminding us of ways that we mess it up we mess it up by uh intentionally uh Creating karma or doing actions that bring harm instead of benefit. It's like reminding us that everything we do intentionally uh, has some effect, wholesome or unwholesome, good or bad. Sometimes people say, What is this good and bad business? I think it really means that wholesome or good means. it's it's uh, it's not coming from greed, hate, and delusion. It's not based on greed, hate, and delusion, and therefore, it generally uh, leads to happy effects for other people and for the causal series that does that action has the intention. So. Uh, It's just, I think this third contemplation is just pay attention to our actions, our intentional actions. This is the realm of the Bodhisattva precepts is the way we do it in our tradition is we have these precepts and we recite them and we remember them. And they're all about not, uh, creating harm for others or ourselves and bringing benefit to others and ourselves. intention uh, I mean the more you like look into any of these uh, these teachings, the more questions it might bring up like what exactly is intention and what's an intentional action? there are many actions that are not intentional um, in the world of non-sentient beings like a you know lightning striking a mountain and having the rock fall down the mountain. It's it's activity, it's action happening, but there's no intention of living being there. Even living beings are doing all kinds of actions that are not intentional, like our hearts are beating. This is like activity of sentient beings, but it's not intentional. It happens without any intention, nicely. Fortunately, if we had to, Keep remembering to keep our heart beating we'd be in trouble especially when we fall asleep <laughs> but uh when i reflect on this it seems like um there's some gray area obviously like right now these words that are coming out are intentional i'm not thinking about every word carefully before i say it but it is coming from intention and uh my hand moving like this is coming from intention but it's starting to get into that gray area <laughs> it, i might not be so aware of it it might just be like happening out of habit but habits actually are intention but i thought of like an example of what about um swatting mosquito what if it's just like a reflex it, it's especially when it's biting us what if, uh, you know, we just like without thinking of it at all. Somebody would say, was that, was that killing? Killing is usually considered like an intentional, unwholesome action. Um, it seems like it's maybe a little gray area because right? maybe it's just a reflex, but um, someone might say it wasn't intentional. It was just um, automatic. But it's a little tricky, because once we start hearing about this thing, we we hear this precept of not killing living beings. No, actually, a mosquito is, I think, a sentient being. Then um, now we have a little different, now we're a little more conscious of this thing. And like, we're still, maybe there's a reflex, but it's like, wait a second. We we do it. And then, and then uh, our friends is... (laughs) I remember once, like, a, uh, five or 10 years ago, there was some, some video, little video clip that went viral of um, the Dalai Lama swatting a mosquito. And people kind of freaked out about it. <laughs> How could he do this? And I think they, <laughs> they they brought it to him and said, that just happened. He's, I don't know. He kind of laughed a little bit, I think. But I bring, these are the questions. And... Um, Once we become conscious of uh, of, um, the sacredness of all life, then uh, maybe then uh, what we thought was just an automatic reflex starts to get maybe retrained, maybe it actually was a subtle intention, not necessarily to obliterate the life of a sentient being, but to relieve my own itch. But uh, realize, oh, wait, that itch actually Relieving the itch actually does obliterate the life of a sentient being. Now we have like a new a new scenario. So now maybe it's like, Ugh! like they're doing it and noticing, oh, that actually was kind of intentional. Karma is. Training our intentions to uh, be more and more beneficial to all beings and less and less harmful to all beings through body, speech, and mind. And again, like all being, all sentient beings, if we really start looking into it, also lots of gray area. What does this mean? I really like um, Thomas Nagel, the American philosopher. Anyone know Thomas (laughs) Nagel? He's um, in the the realm of, um, what do you call it, like Western consciousness studies, phenomenology and there's a whole study of consciousness. in the American and European tradition in modern times, many people looking into what's consciousness. And of course, this overlaps a lot with Buddhist studies. But uh, so some of the Buddhist uh, consciousness studiers picked up on Thomas Nagel's thing. And he's most famous for uh, writing this article of called something like, uh, What It's Like to Be a Bat, I think is what it's called. You can look this up, but um, he just chose this animal called a bat that's um, because it's very, they're very different from us. They, they navigate by radar. We can't imagine what it's like to fly quickly through a pitch black sky and navigate by like um, sound and radar location. Right? It's like a sense that we don't have. And then we have senses that bats don't have. So a very, very different life form the why he chose this. But when talking about consciousness, he says, um, his famous line is there, there is something, there must be something it is like to be a bat. And we can't imagine that experience of being a bat, but there must be something it is like to be a bat. This very non technical language. He became really famous for that line, and a lot of technical consciousness um, studiers love this line, and Buddhists are starting to get into it. There's something it's like to be a person, and uh, this, is, this is one way of defining what consciousness is. There's something it's like to be a bat, and now if we extend this to a mosquito, you know, we don't know for sure, but my intuition is that there's something it's like to be a mosquito. And it's very different, pretty much deduced than what it's like to be a human. But at least I imagine my my strong intuition is that there is something it is like to be a mosquito. That's what we call consciousness, according to this definition. Whereas um, a rock, for example, Most people would say there's not something it's like to be a rock. We don't generally attribute consciousness to rocks, generally. And um, a computer, like a very, uh, um, very advanced computer that can um, win a chess game much quicker than any human, can make calculations much quicker than any human, knows much more than any human. Say, like Siri. For example, she's amazing, isn't she? She like knows basically everything. She's almost omniscient, like a Buddha. Um but I have a strong intuition that there's not something it's like to be Siri. If you really stop and think about this, she knows she's like a sentient being in so many ways. Um I mean, this is a nice example. You compare Siri to a mosquito, right? Siri is like a, like almost like a God, right? Like a, like an, like, almost like an omniscient Buddha, it seems. But I would not say that Siri is a sentient being doesn't have consciousness. There's not something it's like to be Siri, but this dumb mosquito (laughs) (laughs) who is like, doesn't know how stupid it is to bite somebody with a big, Hand (laughs) and um, and you know doesn't even know the four noble (laughs) truths. Um, Mosquito, there maybe is something it's like to be that mosquito. Interesting reflection, isn't it? So there's a lot of talking. All sentient beings share Buddha nature. Any Anything of which we can say there's something it's like to be this type of being that's what we kind of mean by Buddha nature. We could say consciousness, but the the nature of consciousness in its very essence is one way of describing what we mean by Buddha nature and uh, and therefore um maybe a mosquito actually um, produces karma or has intentional activity. Is it just reflex or is it actually there, you know, is there some rudimentary form of responding um, in one way or another to conditions? It's kind of what we mean by human karma. Anyway, it seems to be the Buddha's traditional take on this, The realm of birth and death, sentient beings include animals, of course, and also the unseen realms. Hungry ghost realms, heavenly realms, hell realms. Maybe a lot more unseen, imperceptible beings in traditional Buddhism than perceptible humans and animals. But uh, all these sentient beings are, um, there's something it's like to be them. In the tradition of Buddhist sense, there's something it's like to be a hungry ghost, but there's not something it's like to be Siri. And anything of which there's something it's like to be such a such a living being uh, uh, is these living beings are born and and die and. Um, and the causal series uh, continues beginninglessly, like we chanted this morning, on my ancient twisted karma. <laughs> twisted means, I mean, I think the you know harmful is kind of the original term, but is kind of nice because it's so tangled up we can't figure it out. <laughs> and it's beginningless this is kind of a radical idea, not just beginningless when I was born, but beginningless, this my, my meaning, this causal series, ancient twisted karma, from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through <laughs> body, speech, and mind, I fully avow, it just means I confess and repent it. And, um, and vow to um, let it let it evolve in more and more wholesome ways, and beneficial ways by noticing it. That's why we, I think why we recite that verse. Notice it. So um, naturally, this brings up this issue of rebirth another gnarly topic in buddha dharma and we don't really emphasize so much in zen but um, it usually comes up in the discussions of karma because uh, the buddha says things like the effect of an action um, never um, disintegrates after like millions of eons and when conditions come together for the effect to manifest then the effect comes to fruition and manifests. And this may be after millions of eons for the causal series. So um, naturally then we have to understand like some effects don't come to fruition in this life. So maybe they do in a future life. So there is this traditional teaching of rebirth, partly in order to explain the workings of karma. If you really, totally eliminate um, eliminate the idea of rebirth of a causal series of body and mind experiences, you know, meaning particular, particular birth of this particular causal series, if you eliminate that, like many, I think people try to do in the modern Western Buddhist world, because we don't like it, or it. it doesn't fit with our scientific views or something. But uh, when I reflect on this, I, I think the problem if you eliminate it, then the whole teaching of karma, if you look carefully, the whole teaching of karma starts to unravel. And we kind of have to throw that out too. I think this is, you can you can consider this. But uh, though we don't talk about rebirth much, um, seems like this talk is a good opportunity to bring it up because I think it comes with this third reflection. And the Dogen Zenji actually, surprisingly to some people, talks, I don't know if I should say quite a bit about rebirth, but a fair amount. <laughs> That's not there in Zen, but Dogen has a lot of writings. Right? <laughs> so it's, if you start looking through, um, it's there quite a bit particularly dogan has an essay called um, karmic causality in the three times it's basically all about this that the three times dogan says are um, this lifetime in other words karmic effects of our actions come back to the causal series in this lifetime. The second time is the next lifetime after this one. And the third time is any other future lifetimes after the next one. Uh, We could just say this lifetime or futures, but maybe the next one is particularly potent, the effects. Um, I I think this lifetime has a strong effect on the subsequent lifetime. Maybe that's why the Buddha mentioned these three times and Dogen mentions them. And and in Dogen's extensive record, he says in a kind of Dogen-like way, um, if someone were to ask me, Dogen, what um, what is karmic causality in the three times? What is karmic retribution? karmic cause and effect in these three times. I would say karmic effect in this present life is like um, buckwheat. And um, in parentheses, the annotators kind of nicely help us out with this. If if this is correct, they say buckwheat. This is according to like and Leighton's footnotes. So I probably coming from um, Japan, but uh, uh, a botanist um, like Mary Carroll might be might have another opinion. But apparently, buckwheat, if you plant it in the spring, it's harvested in the fall, like a lot of plants. So Dogen says, if someone were to ask me, Dogen, what about karmic causality in this lifetime, it's like planting buckwheat in the fall that's harvested in the spring. Another good analogy, right? You create a cause here and then later in the same causal series of the buckwheat seed, there's a buckwheat harvest. If someone were to ask me, Dogen, uh, what about karmic causality in the next life after this one? I would say it's like barley. And annotator says um, barley is planted in the fall and it's harvested the next summer. Is that right? I don't know of these grains myself, but it's nice, right? It's like, how does how does it work? It's this other grain that takes longer to come for the for the um, cause to come to fruition. It takes more than one season. Barley. And then Dogen says, if someone were to ask me, Dogen, um, how, how about karmic cause and effect in future lives after the next one, maybe even like thousands of eons? What about that? And Dogen says, like an old growth tree. Just means like, the effects of that of that little acorn uh, are gonna take a really, really long time. Not just like in this season or the next season, but like thousands of seasons, right? When you, um, in California, we like to look at these giant slices of giant redwood trees or sometimes we don't like to look at them because it means that somebody cut it down. <laughs> but if they naturally fall, they are these slices of a tree that's maybe 20 feet in diameter. California, they have all these drive-through trees with some novelty and I don't know when that was, the 30s or 40s or something. They cut a big tunnel in a tree just so you can, you can tell your friends that you drove your car through a tree. <laughs> Just mean that they're really big trees. It doesn't kill them, but it's probably not the best thing for them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when you see those rings, right, and redwood trees, thousands of years um, later, the is this tree that then gets cut down, or those bristlecone pines, or those are the oldest trees in this world system, and. Uh, they're like 3,000, I think, years old. So, from one little seed, right, 3,000 years ago, the effect of this present tree is arising. So, Dobbins says stuff like this about, about, um, you could say, is that really about rebirth? I think it is, in a poetic way. I think that's what he's referring to. And, uh, also, Tobin has an essay called "Deep Trust in Cause and Effect," where he actually kind of rants a little bit about, about, uh, about the Zen monks in his time who don't believe in rebirth. He kind of <laughs> It's kind of a most present-day thing. You can read what he says. It's like, people these days in 13, 1200s, mm-hmm. right? Some of them say, when, when you die, everybody um, enters the ocean of awakened awareness equally. Those ideas are wonderfully floating around in modern America. Even, maybe even Japanese Zen sometimes. Uh, everyone becomes a Buddha when they die. Uh, it's almost like, no one knows really what happens after we die. Right. But, but Dogen didn't like when people talk that way, he's like, that's denying cause and effect. Everybody becomes a, um, um, you know, ocean of awareness Buddha instantly when they die. He's like, and people were saying that at Dogen's time, but he's like, that's, that's annihilationism. That's denial of karmic cause and effect. Like, in old times when a, when they are. a Zen teacher was asked, does, it, does an awakened person fall into karmic cause and effect or not? And he said, no, they don't. Like maybe he was thinking they just enter the ocean of Buddha awareness uh, and there's no more cause and effect. And when he said that, uh, he was subsequently reborn as a wild fox for 500 lifetimes until um, that fox, 500 lifetimes later, asked um, a Zen teacher in his time, "What well, does, does an awakened person fall into cause and effect or not? And that teacher said, an awakened person does not obscure cause and effect. And the wild fox was freed from his fox life upon hearing that. So Dogen tells that story in uh, in this context. So I think the main point of this contemplation, this third contemplation, is to um, humbly notice that everything we're doing couldn't like this causal series hand like making these circles in the air it has an effect it might like disgust you <laughs> that, that my hand is so mindless, and this one too <laughs> or it might inspire you I don't know um but I should be careful what I do with this hand and this one too sometimes we do things with um one hand yeah, and uh in, in tea ceremony which kind of came out of Zen tradition, some say, uh, we learn how to pay attention to the hand it's not doing anything like when you're ser- sometimes <laughs> when you're serving the bowl of tea, you're like very careful with this hand you're like serving it, but this hand's like kind of just hanging over here like this they say like when you're serving with this hand, pay attention to this hand too so um, kind of paying attention to karma causing effect and even paying attention to unconscious things pay attention but in this case particularly by paying attention we want to our intentions of body speech and mind to benefit all beings and uh, conventionally benefit and ultimately benefit because this human life is rare and such an opportunity because as humans, we can actually pay attention to our actions more easily, I think, than like the dog and cat room. They, I think they pay some attention to their actions, but sometimes they're just driven by their noses, right? (laughs) You can say, wait, what, what are you doing there? <laughs> they just, um, they might pay, they, I think they do pay some attention to karmic cause and effect, but not that much. We humans, it's part of this, may be partly why the Buddha says this human realm is so precious to become a completely awakened Buddha because we can pay more attention to karmic causality than other animals and pumpkin ghosts and so on. And because it's a rare, special opportunity of being human, and because it's quickly passing, it could be over this afternoon. Um, Let's pay attention to it now. See how all all three of these reflections go very nicely together. They get more and more intense. The first one is just like, how great this, this human life really is an amazing, wonderful thing. It is. And it is how great it is. So we start with how great, but oh, excuse me. No, actually, actually, it's going to end really soon. <laughs> oh, and then this is like, and not only is it going to end really soon, but between now and the time it ends, everything you do makes a difference, and is actually going to um, evolve your causal series in um, you know towards complete Buddhahood or towards Hell Realms or Hungry Ghost Realms and so on, traditionally speaking, scary. (laughs) And then because of this rarity thing, right? Then, what if we're born as a wild fox for 500 lifetimes and we can't pay attention to karma? What if we're born as a mosquito for a thousand lifetimes and we just get swatted? just gonna it's just gonna make the process long so that's part that's why all these things work together so nicely it's like really if we see this picture more and more clearly it's like wow I want to practice in this life right now practice giving and virtue and patience and diligence and presence and knowing it is thus. Knowing is my, today's creative playful translation of prajna, but we could say, could we say that um, prajna paramita is knowing what it's like to be thus. That's why even a mosquito, if there's something it's like to be a mosquito has the potential to know the nature of their own consciousness. Abru nature. When was this talk supposed to end? does anyone remember? I'm kind of afraid to ask. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Just to keep studying cause and effect. I'm willing to. Uh, 5.10. It was supposed to end at 5.10. Yes. All my ancient twisted karma <laughs> from beginning this greed, hate, and deep delusion, confusion, and uh, mindlessness of the passage of time, When do body, speech, and mind, I fully confess and repent.